Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Data. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me, as always, on a weekly basis when we can, is Adam Harstead with Football Guys. Adam, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yeah, and you know, a couple of people who've entered the holiday season off to a pretty good start that thought would be fun, or at least a pretty good finish, maybe, would be a good way to put it, that have been... Um, fun to watch for fantasy and just from an NFL standpoint have been Christian Watson and Cam Akers. So we're going to talk a little bit about those guys in terms of some of the things that um, are worthwhile from a dynasty perspective um, when it comes to players um, like them in certain respects. We'll talk about some, some models. We'll talk about some film study and we'll get rolling from there. So Let's let's start with Christian Watson um, because certainly he, you know, everyone pretty much knows the story of that he was injured during training camp. That everyone pretty much was talking about Romeo Dubs, who was the the later pick, and uh, you know it was fascinating to me watching him on film, Adam, because pre-draft the guy I compared to Marquise Valdez Scantling as far as like kind of a boom bust type of producer was dubs at least that's what he would exhibit early on to me whereas the guy that i compared to maybe a future javon walker in terms of walker at his best was christian watson um but you know training camp tends to obfuscate some things at times um because of the practice um the coverage of practice and oftentimes the coverage of practice we always hear you know cecil lammy and Sigmund Bloom do a great job of talking about drum beats on their audible episodes at Football Guys. And drum beats are certainly important, but sometimes you have to know, you know, the context behind those drum beats. And sometimes the context is is that these receivers that Aaron Rodgers may say, for instance, are always making plays um, early on in camp in August. And that player, maybe Romeo Dubs, he's like, he just always seems to be making a big play. Well, that's great when you're having one-on-ones against defensive backs or you're looking at you know seven-on-seven passing drills or situations that are set up to where there's one route. Um, sometimes there's a two-way go for them to be able to have the advantage against the defender. Um, there's no real major coverage disguises. Um, and there's a lot less practice being time being devoted to how receivers read coverage on the same page with their quarterback that usually comes later in the practice periods as the preseason um, is wrapping up as we get deeper into the preseason and into the regular season and as we noticed in the coverage there as uh, of the preseason as this as august got into the later part of the month you would hear Aaron Rodgers start saying, well, we need these players to be on the same page with us or they're not going to get a lot of playing time. The same players who were getting praise earlier on because that's just the natural part of the covers, um, a natural part of the progression for these receivers. And it suddenly we're seeing veterans start to make more of the plays in camp that were being noted on. And I think that that's something that people need to understand. But, you know, we fast forward today and Romeo Dubs is still an interesting prospect. Um, he's, you know, the, the San Francisco game where I think people were impressed with him in the preseason still had elements of his game that were in his draft report, which was a guy who's very athletic, who could make um, 
who can make um, you know big plays in the vertical game or after the catch, and that he would get open. But then when it came to time to position himself to the ball, using the techniques that are going to help him finish the play, those were the things that were more up and down about his game. And ultimately, that's usually what's up and down about a lot of players' games if they don't fix that, um, which means they can eventually become wide receiver threes, you know, and they can be maybe big-time boom-bust players like we've talked about with Gabriel Davis, which can still be impactful to your fantasy lineup, or Marquez Valdez-Scantling. But Watson seems to be showing more than that. And so I thought it'd be fun for us to kind of... You brought up at in our Football Guys Roundtable this week, um, you added your thoughts on the model that you like to use. And I know that you know this model has been um, successful in identifying players early in terms of the... Um, in terms of just kind of showing signs of players who end up becoming very productive. So I'd love for you, Adam, to discuss that model, the background with it, and, you know, why Christian Watson fits in there very well. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought his name up because I'm curious to get your thoughts on him too because he's a very it's a very interesting guy to me that I, I feel like there's a lot of things that are telling me maybe I shouldn't like him as much as the model does, but I would like to get you know, from a, from a completely different perspective, your thoughts. Um, so I always do my, I do my rookie drafts late. Uh, I tend to, and that's always my preference because you get like the people overreacting to these tiny training camp things. I had a rookie draft in July um, and I had the 12th pick and um, uh, Watson fell to me, which I didn't think would happen in May because everybody was so excited because he was the number 34 pick and he landed with Aaron Rodgers. And typically people overrate, like if you land with a Hall of Fame quarterback, people will move you up the boards because they're like, oh, this is the perfect situation, which is kind of another rant. Situation doesn't matter. Well, it matters, but it, it's not stable. It, situation yeah. should not really be accounted for in your rookie rankings. Um, but Watson fell to me at 12. And this was even by July. There had been enough drum beats where, like, the consensus had him lower than 12. And I'm like, I have to take him there. I'm, I'm a draft capital truther where, you know, like, I a lot of my valuations on rookies is based on where they went in the NFL draft. Um, and we've discussed this before. You know, it's partly because the NFL is good at identifying talent. And it's partly because when you're taken high in the NFL draft, you have a longer runway. You get, you get more chances. Um, so the guys if you're taking guys who are drafted higher, you get more buffer, you get more chances for them to fail before finally succeeding. Um, so I took Watson at 12 um, and nobody was really grumbling about the pick. I, I think if I had left him, he would have fallen a little bit further still. Um, we were just starting to get to the point where some people were ranking dubs over him outright. And then my second rookie draft was in August. We always do it after the third week of preseason. And dubs did go over Watson just outright. They went 16 and 17. Um, so I do like the late rookie drafts. I think it, early rookie drafts, there's other areas where you can find an advantage where people haven't really had time to do all the research. Um, but I like the late ones because people get in their own heads and they start making dumb decisions. They start overthinking it and talking themselves out of the smart play and into the dumb play. And as somebody who's often drafting late, um, that means guys are more likely to fall to me, guys who I like, guys who I want. Um, so I was kind of tentatively in on Watson. I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. I, you hear that he's going to be a project, that he's not going to be a finished product from day one. Um, I, I expect that I'm going to have to have some patience with him. Um, and, and I'm content to ride these ups and downs and give it a couple of years and see what I have at the end of that. Um, 
and he gets the slow start. He's dealing with the injuries, and I'm like, okay, it's probably going to be a lost season. I knew that going in. I'm not thrilled with it. I, I would rather my guy gains value in, in year one, but it is what it is. It's what I was expecting. And then he starts just flashing really bad, really big. And I don't know if it's because he got healthy. I don't know if he got on the same page with Aaron Rodgers. I think a lot of it is just luck and fluke. He's got nine touchdowns on like 500 yards, which is just a wildly unsustainable touchdown, right? That's not going to carry over. If he's Des Bryant or Rob Gronkowski level talent, maybe he can average one touchdown for every 100 yards. Maybe. Realistically, it's going to be more like one for every 120. But like you said, I have this rookie model, and we're nearing the end of the season. Um, so the sample sizes are big enough where, like, cake's not all the way baked yet, but I'm I'm starting to get curious. I'm starting to get um, eager, kid on Christmas. So I decide to plug in all the rookies and see where they come out. And I'm really floored by how high Watson came out. I knew he had been playing well. I didn't think it was going to be that well. Um, so he scored the model set up so that average is about 100 um, and that like two standard deviations above average is going to be about 125, 130. And Christian Watson scored, let me pull that up. I just lost it. Uh, Christian Watson Watson scored a 114.1, which would rank like 25th out of the 163 wide receivers, rookie wide receivers we had from 2006 to 2021. Um, and as you know, as you mentioned, like I've tested this in this model is very, very predictive. And so I'm kind of at a point where like I'm putting the massive grain of salt on it because it's very heavily dependent on that touchdown tone, which I know is a fluke. Um, but at the same time, we've seen other rookies with fluky high touchdown totals in the past. And that there's been signal there. It's It's meant something. The guys who score too many touchdowns, often that is an indicator of some sort of special talent. Um, and the guys who score too few touchdowns, often that's an indicator of some weakness in their game. So, yeah, he's scoring really high. I'm skeptical of him a little bit because of the slow start and the touchdowns. Um, and then my model's actually, it's its really just got two items to it. There's um, the efficiency, which I'm using like a touchdown-adjusted yards per route run. It's something I've played with a lot over the last 10 years. I've tested a lot, and it's just very, very strongly predictive. So it's got an efficiency term, and then it's got like a usage term that's basically my best encapsulation of like how often is this guy getting on the field. Um, I'm currently doing like routes per game divided by pass attempts per game. So if a guy's running 30 routes a game and the team's throwing 40 passes a game, he's got like a 75% usage rate. And Watson's usage rate is really low. Some of that's due to the injuries. Some of that's due to the fact that I don't think he was in the two wide receiver sets early in the season. So he was missing a lot of pass snaps. Um, and that does bring him down in the model. If we looked just at his efficiency, he would be like off the charts good. And it's important to account for that usage rate. I mean, if you look just at efficiency, the number one rookie so far this season is Raheem Shahid, who's getting on the field for like 30% of pass attempts, and he's just running downfield and catching the ball and he's a valuable role player but i don't it doesn't really profile as future superstar sure um so yeah watson's efficiency is low and i was i was looking at is this a red flag what are the the list of rookie wide receivers who had really strong efficiency and really poor usage rate and um the closest comparison and it's a comparison i hesitate to make i know you struggle too with like any time your closest comparison is a really, really, really good player. It's dangerous to make that comparison because then everybody assumes that like 
you're saying this player will be a really, really good player. But the closest comparison was Tyreek Hill. Okay. Um, Tyreek Hill had a usage score of uh, 70 and a production score of 130. Christian Watson has a usage score of 77 and a production score of 133. Very, very close. Other guys who um, were very efficient on limited action were Percy Harvin, Anthony Gonzalez, Mequel Hardman, and Chris Godwin. And you can kind of see the range there. You've got a couple guys, Gonzalez and Hardman, who were drafted high. The team was really trying to make them happen, and they just never happened. Uh, Hardman developed into a worthwhile role player. Gonzalez just kind of flamed out, got superseded by Pierre Garçon and Austin Colley. Um, but Hill... Godwin, Percy Harvin, like yeah. their role expanded and they didn't lose anything. And I think that's very much in play based on the historical comps. That seems very much an outcome that's in play for Christian Watson, that next year he's participating on 90% of the routes and also he's retaining a lot of this efficiency. Probably not the touchdown rate, but probably the efficiency. So that's my thoughts on him. I, I would be really curious to hear your thoughts from a process standpoint, because outcomes in terms of, of the results he's putting on the field, um, it really is kind of a special season and especially a special uh, second half of the season. Yeah. And I think that the process is equally promising for him um, or close enough that you would say, if, if we're going to realistically look at the outcomes and say, he has a chance to be a good starter in this league for a, a good span of years. I think that's a realistic outcome based on what he showed on film, both at North Dakota state and so far in Green Bay. And, you know, to give some context, I had Christian Watson as my sixth wide receiver in the pre-draft rookie scouting portfolio. And then when he joined the Packers, I had him eighth overall on my post-draft cheat sheet, which I tier. And in my first tier, I can tell you that my top eight players who were all basically encompassed my highest tier was eight players. And those were in this order. Chris Olave, Brees Hall, <laughs> Kenneth Walker, Drake London, James Cook, Jameson Williams, Garrett Wilson, and Christian Watson. So he was eighth at the bottom of the highest tier, um, which for me are players that I either see as immediate contributors um, year one or players who, when they do get on the field, should become immediate contributors once they have a, a short acclimation process. Um, so what that was in, you know, that was in May with Watson. Now my scouting report on him, you know, I compared him stylistically and not talent wise talents, part of it, but stylistically, I like to do a spectrum. So the guy at the top of the spectrum, when he was at the top of his game was Javon Walker. Um, in terms of that size, in terms of how he's used both. He could be used as a split end. He could be used as a flanker. He was good after the catch. He could win at the catch point. A guy who was, I think, nearly as talented, but maybe not from a work ethic perspective, able to fulfill that role on a day-in, day-out maturity level to sustain his, his play was Martavis Bryant. And so... He was close to me. I had Watson closer to that Martavis Bryant tier where he might leapfrog him, but he's in that model. And then the guy that I had at the very bottom who I felt like if the bottom just fell out of his game and he never got off the ground at all, it was Stephen Hill who was a, you know, a good size, size, speed 
guy who could track the football, but had some issues, had a lot of different issues that derailed him um, technically. And so when I watched, you know, Watson, the, my elevator pitch for him in the RSP was that, you know, he's an upside worth player worth taking earlier than his small school billing in this class because when you look at his height, his agility, his speed, um, and the developmental skills of his game, he may have dominated lesser competition, but the plays he made were all rooted in the athletic ability and positional skills that actually translate well. Um, you know, and then on top of it, you can look at his frame and say, part of that acclimation is getting an NFL body, you know, which he still had, you know, but you could see how his body could support closer to 200 and 225 pounds within the next couple of years. Like, I won't be surprised if by 2024 he's in that weight range and probably more explosive in that weight range because he's adding probably more fast twitch muscle. He's had special teams experience, so you know that with a kick return specialist and a return man and blocker um, on kicks and punts, you have a player who is a physical football player, not just a speed guy. Um, so that's something that's always important. And although he was a part of a small school program, his experience as a route runner in a pro, is in a pro-style offense that gives him a sound technical foundation to build on because he played in a West Coast offense. You know, that's the thing that people often poo-poo about North Dakota State, and they talked because it got so hyped up about Carson Wentz when he went to North Dakota State. And they're like, well, look at him. They had to reshape the offense in Philadelphia because it wasn't working well for him early. Well, the reason that wasn't working well for him early was that the concepts he understood just fine. The problem is that he always had bad footwork with drops. So he couldn't execute three, five, seven step drops with the level of accuracy to so where that when he finished the top of his drop that his feet were in a position that he could throw an accurate ball. And so when it came to throwing downfield, he often, you just didn't know what you were going to get from him because his feet would either be too wide or too narrow. And there was no real predictable way of discerning when that was going to be. Because you could say, sometimes I'll study players and you'll say, well, on short drops with a quick open, you know, a late open to the late out, you know, where you're dropping opening to one side. And then after you've looked off the, the defense on one side, you make a quick pivot and throw the, the out to the other side. Sometimes players, when they pivot, their front foot gets wider than their base. And now they're throwing with their leg straight. And as a result of that, when your front leg is straightened out, you tend to sink throws in the shallow game. You tend to sail throws in the intermediate and vertical games. It's just a mechanical aspect of it that's hard to overcome and you see that a lot a guy like dorian robinson thompson robinson of ucla hat is a guy i watched yesterday who exactly does that thing so for the eagles they had wentz run out of pistol and shotgun after early in the second season because they realized it wasn't getting better and they needed to make an adjustment and when he could just catch pitch and throw or catch realize that no one's open right away and um, run around and be able to throw the ball over defenses by buying time. He was really good for a while until 
you know, defenses could kind of adjust a little bit to his game, and you can see the ups and downs of what happens there. But that doesn't change the fact that the reads, being on understanding the route concepts and the defense and being on the same page and running the routes that you would run in the NFL in that West Coast offense, we're all there at North Dakota State. Just because quarterbacks got a slow start doesn't mean that the offense isn't a pro-style offense and that you have to learn certain things. And Christian Watson's releases, his setups, his breaks, while they all needed some improvement to play, to be at the level of an NFL starter, um, his understanding of how to create favor favorable position against a defender early in a route and earn separation was very much a part of his game. And that was on display in the first game of the season, when he just whipped Patrick Peterson one-on-one. -on -one. And you could say, you know, Patrick Peterson's older. He's not the same player he used to be. But he's still a starter on an NFL team with a lot of experience facing a rookie. And he may not be the all-pro version of Patrick Peterson, but he's still an NFL starter version. And that's, that's still impressive. He just dropped the ball. He, he It was a, his first... I've, I've joked even on my on some video analysis that Christian Watson 12 years from now is telling a story about his first target in the NFL and how he whipped Patrick Peterson's behind and the ball comes in and he overthought it, used the wrong hand position and it clanged off his hands. And that was the last you heard of him for several weeks, you, you know? And, yep. and I was joking, it's like, someday he's gonna tell this story and laugh because he's a good wide receiver who's just gotta develop. And when you look at things like, you know, the hands technique was always one of the first things that he was going to have to address. Um, he was capable of difficult catches. So you that's always a positive because when you can make the athletic adjustment, you have high level tracking and you can deal with contact with the defender to win the ball. Well, those are the harder things to, to teach. The easiest thing to teach is where to put your hands at the moment the ball is arriving. It takes practice, but it's not impossible to do. It's far from impossible to do. If Quincy Anunwa, who I've actually seen Adam, go up for a ball at Nebraska like this, and like this, I mean, I literally have film of him doing that, can learn with the New York Jets to untangle all that and actually begin making catches by his second year. And if it weren't for a neck injury, might have been a pretty good NFL player. Um, Christian Watson doesn't have anywhere near like the interpretive dancing maneuver I display I shared with Adam on video just now with his hands. I literally crossed my hands and had the palms facing in opposite directions. Um, you, you know, for those of you who aren't seeing this, that was what Anun was doing. Watson's not doing anything nearly like that. He just sometimes claps onto the ball or his hands are too wide or he's using underhand technique when he should be using overhand technique based on the position of the ball. And these are all things that you can work on with drills, you know. And so these are, these are things that are just lapses that lead to unforced errors. And the, the proper technique isn't foreign to him with any type of target. It's just a lapse in detail when you look at the sum of his game. So, and then once he has a ball in his hands, I mean, you can see, I mean, he's graceful, he's powerful. He has that curvy linear speed to take the corner without 
losing much when he doesn't have when he can't make a hard cut or when it's better to just be able to change direction without having to slow down to make a cut um he's got the finishing power contact balance he forces gang tackles i mean to me this is before you're adding the you know 10 15 pounds worth of muscle that he will that he's looks like has the body to add within the next you know 16 to 24 months um so for me um you know the best scheme fit for him were teams that fit the west coast system and so for me it was jacksonville kansas city tennessee denver cleveland green bay and then you could add pittsburgh miami dallas and detroit were all teams that came to mind for various reasons due to scheme um supporting talent and growth potential and i think he can become a top 12 producer at his position during his peak years um as long as he's able to correct the hands position and he has the surrounding talent to support him and i think green bay is a you know they may not be at the championship level that a lot of people often expect in the media from them because they've had an elite quarterback for years and some good skill talent um but the the packers are one of those teams that it's very difficult for them to dip below seven and nine on a consistent basis because they have a good infrastructure around them um so when i look at watson that it all that jives well with your model to me is this is going to be a good receiver and you know when people were talking about the preseason they just simply they got wrapped up in the daily training camp buzz of beat reporters reporting what they see not necessarily what is happening in context of what they see yeah um yeah so i um recently was posting the results of my model on twitter um, and i think the biggest point of contention um really was just garrett wilson in general the the out the output is and it's it's the rookie class is doing incredibly well. I, I bet if I went back and compared it to other classes, this is probably like a top three or top four rookie class. Um, Chris Olave is having a really special season. If you put it in context, um, he is... So I've, I've graded 163 receivers from 2006 to 2021. If you slot Olave in there, um, he's not in that top, top, top tier, which was Beckham, Chase, Jefferson, and A.J. Brown. They were just head and shoulders above the rest of the rookies as rookies. Um, but Olave is competing in that next, like, 5 to 10 range. Um, it's possible he could pass Mike Evans for, like, the number five rookie performance portfolio. Um, and then you have uh, the next three were London, Watson, and Wilson in that order. And they're in that... Um, kind of like 15 to 25 range they're both having like they're having like really strong seasons uh, other guys in that general range michael thomas percy harvin stefan diggs cooper cup Devonte smith dk metcalf debo samuel amari cooper uh marquise brown brandon Ayuk, doug baldwin uh, as you can see like it doesn't miss this is not an area of the model that results in in lackluster careers by any stretch of the imagination like these are all incredibly promising scores but people were getting mad that, like, how dare the model suggest that that um, Watson is has been better than Wilson this year? Um, and I get that. I mean, I would not trade Garrett Wilson for Christian Watson, even if Watson scores 
marginally better according to my production model to this point. I'm, I am worried about the touchdowns and how reliant he has been for his production to this point. Um, but people are suggesting, you know, like, oh, what if you like take advantage? What if you take into account Zach Wilson? Like, how did Garrett Wilson score only in the six weeks that Zach Wilson didn't play? And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. Because once you go down that road, you, you just don't use a model at all. The whole point of the model is this objective look at what's going on. And once you start cherry picking and context adjusting and adding complexity, you're overfitting and you're getting something that describes everything and predicts nothing. <laughs> uh, but since everybody was asking, I ran it anyway. And I said, okay, even if you look just at these six weeks that Wilson didn't play, um, Garrett Wilson does move up a little bit. He still doesn't catch Chris Olave. He moves slightly ahead of um, Christian Watson. He moves slightly ahead of Drake London. But the interesting thing is actually Drake London had an even higher score during that six week in question, which is just random. I mean, to Drake yeah. London, they're just a random six weeks, but that's why you don't look at six weeks because in those particular six weeks, Drake London looked like Odell Beckham, according to the production model. So um, yeah, I, I, I like having just the single objective number where I'm not taking it according to gospel i'm not saying the model says that that christian watson is going to be the 17th best fantasy receiver of the last 20 years more i'm looking at it you know like to open my eyes to things that like i i knew watson was having a good year i didn't know how good that score pops up in the model and all of a sudden like okay I'm suddenly taking a, a long, hard second look at Christian Watson. I'm suddenly sending out offers and checking what the price is. And um, I don't think he's better than Garrett Wilson, but I think he'd be a heck of a lot cheaper to get right now than Garrett Wilson would. Um, you know, Drake London's another guy where people think that Wilson's having a dramatically better season than Garrett than, than Drake London, but the Jets have thrown the ball like 550 times and the Falcons have thrown the ball like 350 times yeah. you know it, it Zach Wilson might be bad but at least the team is passing yeah. Atlanta's running like I don't even know what they're running on offense yeah and London's getting what he's getting you know on a per play on a per attempt on a per opportunity basis London's actually been slightly better than Garrett Wilson although like I said it's really splitting hairs any of these four guys look like stars and if you have them in your dynasty leagues, you should be just grinning like the Cheshire Cat right now because everything about all four of those guys is pointing to, like, these are going to have really, really impactful fantasy careers for you. Well, this this sounds like a good time to hear from our sponsor because, um, you know, Chris Olave, Drake London, you go back, you know, Garrett Wilson, Christian Watson showing up a little later, but still providing early notice. And then you go back a little earlier, Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddle, Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown. They went deep on NFL corners from the jump. And the rookie scouting portfolio has been ahead of the curve for about 17 years, helping fantasy GMs go deep on in their leagues with the likes of guys that I mentioned and other players like Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Nick Chubb, Cooper Cup. It's a two-in-one fantasy-focused draft guide. The RSP covers over 150 rookies at the offensive skill positions. You get comprehensive player profiles and analysis, pre-draft and post-draft rankings with tiers, cheat sheets with designated sweet spots to try and optimize your draft value, as well as combine three-year rookie rankings and a newsletter that comes out June through December. It's one of the two most purchased independent draft guides by NFL scouts, according to SMU's recruiting director, Alex Brown. You can get it 
or you pre-order it right now um, for its April 1 scheduled download. And I've been on schedule every year that I've been doing this since 2006. You can get it at mattwaldman.com for $21.95. And, and trust me when I tell you, most of my readers like to tell me that that they would pay double or they would pay a lot more and that I should charge more. I hear that a fair bit. Um, so if you want to take advantage, you may have missed the low, low rate of 1995, but many of you have decided that you just are not going to do that as a, as a friendly protest to me. So for those of you who, who are perverse enough to decide that you're going to pay me full price, you can do that right now at mattwaldman.com. And, and I def definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, now one of the players, you know, that, that, you know, I remember looking at in the RSP who I like, but I kind of labeled an incomplete masterpiece as kind of my, you know, kind of buzzy title that we all like, that I like to use occasionally to get some attention was Cam Akers. I mean, 5'10", 217 pound running back out of Florida State. And a lot of it was because, you know, he was a tackle breaker, a pass receiver. He could beat safeties with his speed. But at the same time, he could he could hold up long enough for, by a running back standard, even against, like, major college nose tackles. This is a guy with tantalizing physical skills and some baseline technical skills that really flashed, that he could be built for a real workload. And... What was fascinating to me, because I covered him this week in football, guys, is that, you know, he's the number three running back over the past four or five weeks in fantasy right now, which is amazing when you consider his story from, A, beginning with the Rams, and the Rams were kind of in flux with their offensive line after the Todd Gurley left, and really before Todd Gurley left, they were in flux with their offensive line. Um there were teams being able to figure out McVeigh's offense to the level that he was stubbornly not making the adjustments that maybe a, a, a more veteran coach would probably do. And he was getting some criticism, deservedly so on occasion. Maybe some of that criticism was more for me, and I'm subjectively saying deservedly so. But for just not adjusting to, you know, when, when defenses play a tight alignment, something that you see in high school, to stop the wide zone, and it takes you nine and a half games to finally start running gap plays, which is like the main thing that you can do to beat these tight alignments easily. And every high school coach on Twitter was literally like pulling their hair out, talking about that, like if they just run some power or run some trap or you know, do some of this, they will have a solution about this. Why isn't he trying this? And when he did, they had success. Even with Gurley, who was not the same player physically after that injury he had in that Kansas City game that wasn't really, you know, was kind of swept under during that Super Bowl season and then came back to bite them. So Akers, you know, joins that team, has some production, but watching him on film, Adam, he... He really looked like he was still acclimating. He did not look, he didn't show the the promise of the cam makers I saw at Florida State. He was thinking a lot because I thought he was more of a gap player running, you know, behind pulling guards. He was better suited towards that right now and that his own game needed more refinement in terms of understanding his keys, 
um, developing the footwork so that he didn't have to think about his footwork at the point of attack or the point of setting up blocks and that it was going to take him a little bit of time if they didn't use that and he was you know when you get open creases and the looks that they had he looked he was getting production but he didn't look he looked like he was thinking he looked like he was playing a little more tentative than what you would what I saw at FSU and they didn't use him in the passing game all that much and while he wasn't Austin Eckler as a route runner there were enough plays on tape that you could look at him and say he could develop in that direction like I thought Cam Akers could be the most complete back in that draft class if he developed the route running skills and the team fostered that encouraged that by using him in the scheme on that level because he had that in him he adjusted really well on scramble drills to get into open zones he has great hand-eye coordination he's tough at the catch point um so those things weren't there then he tears the achilles he you know he comes back early everybody's excited about him coming back early but he didn't do anything really that noteworthy and then next thing we know what was it like six weeks ago eight weeks ago you know he's not even with the team he's left the team they're trying to trade him nobody's taking him there were no takers that we know of or that were serious about trying to get acres and now he's a number three running back in fantasy football over the past month and granted he's faced you know four teams out of five that have been in the top 10 most generous against running backs statistically for fantasy but you know when I watched his game I've actually seen the cam Akers that I uh, who looks like he's now acclimated and playing more like he did at Florida State than at any time in his NFL career without a great offensive line without Allen Robinson you know Woods Cup Matthew Stafford he's got he's got a lot of guys who are not all that great around him and he's still making great decisions. He looks much more comfortable in the zone game. The footwork's there. He is um, explosive. And he's become more efficient. Because at um, Florida State, Adam, he would, he'd make a lot of jump cuts. And running backs are really athletic. Love to do the lateral cuts where they either do the, um, the jump stop and change direction or the jump cut. And the jump stop often is the precursor to a, a, a jump cut. And Kenyon Drake's famous for this. Kenyon Drake will jump stop and and he will jump like three, four yards in the direction of the line and then try to make the cut. And early on in his career, he would, you know, I've talked about this a lot, he would ram his head in the backside of some of his linemen because he didn't, he was out of control doing this. The only guy I've seen in the past 15 years who like could get away with jump cuts that were that inefficient there were two actually one over the course of time he did it so well and he and he showed efficiency in so many other ways to be able to 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 do things that now cam Akers is doing which is just point instead of jump cutting he could point his toe to the boundary open his hips and make a cha- a, a, a 90 degree change of direction with one step and that, that, that hip opener is something that you could look at from guys like Frank Gore, that's the guy, or someone like Arian Foster who was very good at that. Um, and most backs do that nowadays. The veteran backs you'll see are very good at that. But the guy who never really did that well 
but was a great running back during his peak was Adrian Peterson. And even with the Lions, even like aging Lions pre-getting knocked out by Le'Veon Bell in a boxing exhibition, Adrian Peterson would could still jump cut three or four yards towards the line and get away with it on enough plays that you could say, okay, he's still capable at this age of doing this. That's how freakish he was to use that type of technique. And Akers leaned on that a lot. But this year, you're seeing him learn the efficient footwork maneuvers to know when to bounce. He's hugging blockers better. He's understanding how to set, um, press and set up blocks both in the open field and between the tackles. And the power's back. That he's, you know, he's able to to win against defenders on the first line and be able to generate pushes. Now they're using him more in the passing game probably because they need to. And he's he's doing well in that respect. So to me, the fact that one and also the Rams are using more gap plays because every team in the NFL is going returning to using gap because the opposing defenses are running these nickel looks with too high shells and and light, have lighter defenses that they've spent a lot of draft capital on these hybrid linebacker safety types, even if they're not called that. Um, a lot of these guys aren't termed that when you look at their weights, you go, well, if you compare them to, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, a lot of these weak side linebackers are a lot lighter. Um, and so, you know, some of them are a lot lighter or they would have probably played a safety in, in that role. So, you know, acres to me, he, he's a player that this time last year, I very, I rarely have people off a li off my list as players that I'm not going to, I don't want to consider. But based on the the history of the Achilles injury, um, we have to remember that Akers and Dante Foreman were around the same time. Um, so at that point, it was like I'm writing off Akers at least to recommend anybody. Let let's just wait and see. Well, both of them now that we've waited and now that we've seen. They're both viable players on, on a certain level. And Akers now is not only back on my list, but I think he's better than he was and is and is a player that you really need to consider. And even if if the Rams get a Rashad Penny, like they just bring I think they I could see them bringing in a guy like Rashad Penny and going, he'd be a great fit in our system. We don't know if he can stay healthy, but if we pair him with somebody else, we can get him at a discount. Um, and we can add bolster more depth to our our depth chart without spending a ton or we'll get a draft pick you know in the fourth or fifth round and people will look at the guy and go well he could have been a second or third round pick based on how everybody sees him so maybe he's you know like the zamir white to josh jacobs thing we might wind up with that kind of scenario and then people will say well acres is more like rashad penny to kenneth walker and you're still benefiting by having cam acres um in this in these scenarios because I think for him to go through what he's gone through and to be at this point right now with the the team situation he's in um, I don't know how they don't at least they maybe they're not building around a running back but I don't know how they don't just say well we're gonna ride him for another year I mean this looks good why are we gonna mess with this yeah, it, I, it's funny you brought up Akers. I don't think there's a player in the league right now that I think more embodies 
my tendency to see players more as like profiles than players. Like my thoughts on Cam Akers, the player, I don't really have a lot. Uh, my thoughts on Cam Akers, the profile, he's one of those guys where I have been in on him and out on him and in on him and out on him and in on him. And it's it's more because of the market movement than because of my movement. I mean, I got him in one of my rookie drafts because he fell and he had that draft capital and he had that draft profile I like. Um, I got him in my other dynasty league midway through his rookie season when he was doing nothing. I traded Brandon Ayuk for him, um, and I like Ayuk, but he's, again, one of those profile things. Like, I know he's done nothing to this point, but historically, guys with draft capital like that, a lot of times they'll pop, and then he did. He went nuts at the end of his rookie year, and he shot way up in market value, and then all of a sudden, now I'm trying to sell him. Like, I, I had been buying him in both leagues, and now I'm trying to sell him in both leagues because... This is probably higher than that warrants. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get anything done before he blew out his Achilles. And then all of a sudden, I'm back in on Cam Akers because <laughs> everybody's like, oh, Achilles, that's the kiss of death. He's never, ever going to come back from that. And I'm like, one of my big things is people underrate modern medicine. You know, there's a first time, like, everything that has happened at one point had never happened before. You know, like, ACL injuries are routine. ACLs ended Gale Sayers' career. They ended Terrell Davis's career. Even in 2000, they turned Edron James into a completely different player. He was never the same player after he tore his ACL. You know, by 2008, you had Wes Welker coming back from a torn ACL in like eight months. Now, a guy tears an ACL and it's like nothing. Okay, this is like it sucks, but he'll be back. He'll be fine. Nobody's career is ended by ACLs anymore. And then it turned, you know, like a bunch of other injuries have become the boogeyman, like a ruptured patella. Nobody had ever come back from that until Jimmy Graham did it with Seahawks, you know, a, a torn Achilles. First of all, it was a kiss of death for all positions. And then Demarius Thomas and Michael Crabtree came back and were very effective wide receivers. And, oh, now it's just for running backs. You know, no running back has ever come back from Achilles. And um, when so I was in on acres after the Achilles tear and then. Um, when he came back so quickly, everybody's like, oh, he's going to be a freak of nature. He's going to be the outlier. And I'm like, oh, cool. This is another good sell window. Let's see if I could. And I moved um, Akers and a little bit extra for Austin Eckler. So then I'm back out on him. You know, and then he was kind of bad at the end of the year and he kind of fell again. And then he opened this year really bad. And you were talking about the drama. Uh, and I'm like, that's obviously a bad sign for Cam Akers. But the best sign for Cam Akers is look at James Robinson. James Robinson tore his Achilles, ruptured his Achilles, and he's coming back, and he's looking pretty good. And then Dante Foreman started coming back and looking pretty good. And I'm like, the evidence on the play is bad, but we're getting all this new information that, hey, Achilles injuries aren't as terrible for running backs as we thought, so all of a sudden I'm back in on Akers again. Um, and it's, it's funny that I, I don't know that there's a guy in the league where I have gone from above market to below market and back and <laughs> forth and back and forth more times than I have with Cam Akers. Um, but yeah, he's he's a former first-round pick. Um, and when you're going to take bets on players, like with Josh Jacobs, bet on players who have that draft capital, partly because that draft capital is usually indicative of some sort of talent, and partly because it means they're going to get a longer leash. They're going to get more chances to fail. If Cam Akers had been a sixth-round pick, he'd be out of the NFL already. Because he's a first-round pick, he's still getting these chances. And eventually, a lot of times, there are players who, who maybe are not good enough to hit on their first try, but their second, their third try. Um, and then, yeah, I like buying injured players when you get a sufficient discount for it. Sometimes the price doesn't drop. But if a guy gets injured and all of a sudden he costs a third what he cost last week, yeah, I'll buy him for a third. And, and 
you know, if there's a chance that I return nothing, you make enough of those bets and you're going to make a profit. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of back in on acres. Uh, we'll see what his price does in the ensuing month, especially if he continues this towards stretch down the end of the end of the season. Um, but I agree that there's, it's not an unblemished profile, but there's a lot of things in that profile to like right now. Um, and if you're looking for a later, cheaper running back who has reasons for optimism, I was talking earlier this week on Twitter, when I'm filling the end of my bench, I'm not looking for perfect profiles because if there's a perfect profile, he's not he's not available, right? Justin Jefferson has an unblemished profile. I'm not getting Justin Jefferson. Whoever has him isn't giving him up. That's not a realistic option. You're looking for guys with issues. And, and typically when I'm looking at guys like that, I want one good reason to believe in them. I want one thing, you know, like tell me the story about how you become fantasy relevant. What's the trump card you have? You know, if it's, I kind of like Rashid Shahid. I was mentioning how his efficiency was really high. And long-term, he's probably Debory Henderson. He's probably kind of a one-note, deep-threat role player like New Orleans loves. But for the cost of free, sure, I'll add him onto, my, onto the end of the bench and, and, and hope. Because, I mean, there have been other guys who started out as that, you know, Tyreek Hill people thought was going to be a one-note, deep-threat. And I'm not saying Rashid Shahid is Tyreek Hill. I'm just saying I want one reason to believe. And he's shown me that one reason to believe. And Cam Akers, I think, has has two or three reasons to believe that he could be a, a, a viable long-term fantasy um, running back. Well, you know, and that's the that's the fun of this is getting the chance to see how these storylines evolve. And and one thing we do know is that we're in on Adam Harstead. You can find his work at FootballGuys.com. We're in on the rookie scouting portfolio. You can find it at MountWaltman.com. And uh, we will be back within the next week to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, about fantasy football. And we wish you guys all the luck um, that you can get and all the skill that you have to muster for your fantasy championships this week. And uh, have a good week and a happy new year. Oh, I just want to add oh, yeah. real quick. Yeah. Championship. Just always remember, fantasy football is 50% skill and 50% luck. When you win, that's skill. When you lose, that's luck. See, there you go. <laughs> Love it. See y'all.